Welcome to This Week in the Warner Archive Collection, where we discuss our newest releases. I'm George Feltenstein, and I'm proud to be joined by my colleagues, Matt Patterson and D.W. Ferranti. No new releases are the subject of this week's Warner Archive podcast because this week we're saying happy birthday to ourselves. We are approaching the 10th birthday of the Warner Archive collection, which first sprang upon the scene as a big surprise to a lot of people on March 23rd, 2009. Initially set up as a manufacturer-on-demand DVD service with 150 titles, we have grown over the last 10 years where we now have over 3,000 thousand titles available and it's not just dvds it's blu-rays and it's not just movies it's television it's animation it's everything but the kitchen sink so we're going to talk about the last 10 years how we got here and where we're going i see this episode as a good point for a listener after this will be the 381st podcast when you see there have been so many podcasts over 10 years, a uh, big question for me is, where do I start? And I figured this will be like a good introduction into what is Warner Archive. And so then you, after listening to this episode, you're going to be so excited that you can then go back and listen to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of episodes. And I think I recorded the first podcast two weeks before we actually launched the service. Yeah, yeah. And it was a classic radio show. Right, because that's how the podcast started out, and then they turned into something far more elaborate. But we have to begin at the beginning, and this was the brainchild of the gentleman who is now the president of Warner Brothers Home Entertainment for both video, whether it be physical or digital, as well as games. Jim Wethridge, he is the person who came up with this idea in the early aughts. He approached me in the hallway, seeing a bunch of CDs under my arm that were soundtracks that we had been producing as a limited internet item. And he loved the idea of the business model and wanted to figure a way to bring it to DVD. And a few years later, he again approached me and said, I think I've got the idea of how to do that. And a year later, he made a presentation. The idea was greenlit. And about two or three years later, we were in business. So the long journey to get just in business is basically irrelevant, except to say that a lot of people put a lot of work into it. But it was indeed on March 23rd, 2009, that that morning, Debbie Reynolds was on the Today Show announcing the Warner Archive collection and that the gems hidden in our vaults were going to be available for people to own on DVD that they never thought they could get before. Kind of taking a step backwards, Warner Archive is sort of a different approach uh, to home video than had been like the system before. And you'd been involved in the home video business, not necessarily from its inception, but from the VHS days. Right, right. my involvement in the initial days of home video, I was still in high school. Traditionally, I mean, to put this in an even larger context, these films that we're seeing now, you know, you went to go see them in a movie theater, and then maybe they came back? You, you know, they'd reissue them later or, or remake them? I mean, there wasn't much opportunity to see movies. There are two eras. There's the right. pre-television era. Yeah, pre-television. And pre-television, you didn't have the opportunity to see a movie unless it was reissued. Right. 
And the reissue business was very limited in the 1930s and the 1940s and the early 50s. And the studios withheld their movies from television until the mid-50s. And in the mid-50s, the dam broke, and lots of pre-1948 movies started to become available for syndication to local television And, and that's really the first time people, in a, in a wide, without having your own projector or system, this was the first time you could see movies at home. Well, unless you had a lot of money and right. rented films from non-theatrical film distributors, watching a movie at home was pretty much impossible until... Until the advent of home video. And video cassettes and video discs started to pop onto the scene in the late 1970s. And each studio handled it in a different way and didn't really know what to make of it. And then what happened was a rental market started right. to develop, which the studios hadn't planned on. And by the end of the 1980s, which is when I first got into the business, the home video business had matured enough so that there was a huge swath of thousands and thousands of mom-and-pop video stores, and we were just starting to see the advent of blockbuster video. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the same time, by the end of the decade, you saw the beginning of the sell-through video cassette, meaning video cassettes that weren't priced at $80 or $90, but that were priced at $20 or $30 and made it possible for you to affordably buy a movie and own it. Right. And so that that was, you know, when you think about it, really relatively recently that people would buy movies to have at the home. And then when you go just like, you know, 10, 12 years later, now we have the DVD. Exactly, because the DVD made it possible for an affordable manufacturer as well as selling price to offer lots of movies and not take up as much space. Right, so television shows were finally right. possible. DVD without. made collecting television shows much more attractive and easy. And it was indeed uh, Warner Home Video in its marketing of Friends really blew out the potential of what a huge money-making opportunity TV on DVD could be. But there was only so much space on the shelf at the store. So what we we need to focus on, there used to be these things called video stores, <laughs> and they were video specialty stores, and you fondly remember them uh, as they are now but a distant memory, specifically Tower Records and Tower Video, Suncoast, and uh, Virgin. They were some of the bigger chains. There were lots of other chains that have since uh, gone out of business, but there were many, many video stores that had huge libraries, including the big box stores, which still thrive today and still sell video, but some of them also had deep library shelving. Right. And specifically Best Buy as an example. Mm -hmm. Best Buy's video selection was incredibly impressive. And what started to happen in the latter part of the 2000s, just as we were developing Warner Archive, there was still the problem of certain amount of units you had to sell in order to justify the costs that still exist today, that justify the cost of putting your movies out there, fighting for shelf space, that still exists also, but there's less of it and there are less places to 
put right. the videos. But there were certain films that even in the halcyon days of DVD that couldn't sell enough copies to justify putting them out in the world. And that was where manufacturing on demand became attractive because one of the problems that was a problem and still is a problem for the video industry of physical product is you sell the product and what doesn't sell is returned. And managing that returned inventory is a huge financial burden. So this business model of manufacturing on demand eliminated the issue of return inventory. You get an order from a consumer, you make the disc, and you send it out. That was the basic concept. And that's how we started, because with the world's largest film library, we had many, many requests for films that weren't available for people to own on DVD, and people would constantly request these titles, sometimes people within the industry. And there was no way to really provide them with a copy. And then we figured out that we could find a way to work with a company to manufacture on demand. And we assumed that there would be one order here, one order there. And it turned out to be far more substantial and successful than we ever dreamed it could be. And uh, the response was a bit hesitant, uh, as well as very enthusiastic. I started right before the program launched. And one of the first people who I talked to about the program was my pal Dan sitting over here because Dan had what I called his living room's largest library. Dan, you had like a wall-to-wall collection of video, at least in my opinion. On my own and in my ignorance had for years been saying, armchair quarterbacking. (laughs) Why don't the studios do this for the less known titles like Search? Then the Warner Archive announcement came out and I was like, at last, awesome, somebody figured it out. And through an odd set of circumstances, not that much longer, I found myself in George's office saying, have you heard of this show called Search? I I just want to say that somebody on Twitter just the other day was like, I heard Dan talking about Search on the last episode, on this current podcast episode, along with Man from Atlantis. I've never seen these. These are amazing. Well, and what what all this means is we started the business in 2009, and the business has grown, and we've released so much product in the last 10 years to great success, thanks to the support of consumers who have been basically our most fervent supporters. And I remember being impressed when our Facebook page had 15,000 likes and now we're at 200,000 plus, 250, 25, something like that? 12, I think. It feels like a million. There are people who read our page who haven't liked us yet. No. (laughs) They're waiting for their favorite movie. Those likes, because I need the hits. But what, what is really important, at the same time we were developing this business, there was a seismic shift right within the video Timing. industry and in fact in the world because the economic collapse of 2008 was almost simultaneous with Mm-hmm. the bankruptcy of Tower and oh, Tower yeah. going out of business and Virgin going out of business and all the specialty retailers that supported deeper catalog being readily available 
were suddenly going out of business. And the big box stores that carried a robust selection of video, the amount of shelf space was getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And at the same time, I have to acknowledge that even in the halcyon days of DVD when we were doing new collections every week for retail and doing very well with them, much to the chagrin of the other studios who tried to copy us. Even in those days, it was still a very large online retailer that was responsible for most of the sales of classic films on DVD and remains in that position today. And the development of the business is that as this was successful and as, George, you experimented with uh, different programming, more and more things came out, and then we were able to take that money and put it back into the mass. We consistently reinvested in the business. So we started with our own online shop, which was the only place you could get these DVDs. That shop is not owned by Warner Brothers anymore, although it continues the name. We have a lovely relationship. It is a licensed third party, but we had our own shop and we started that way. And then we started to make the product available to other third parties. And suddenly their portion of the business grew to be enormous, whereas the amount of business relative to the internal shop diminished. And so the mainline places where people go online to buy video product from all labels became the places where people could buy product from us. And indeed, we went from DVD fives, and for those of you who don't know the difference, a DVD five is a single layer disc. A DVD nine is a dual layer disc that can hold almost twice as much content. And for the first year, we really didn't want to release a movie that was longer than two hours because right. if you put it on a DVD-5, it's not going to look very good. And one of the things that we really were committed to from the very beginning was preserving the original aspect ratio, making sure that the quality was acceptable for DVD, which at the time was different from what is acceptable for Blu-ray now, and at the time, we never could have imagined we would be in the Blu-ray business. But after we found the best masters within the company and released them, both in terms of feature films and television programs, we were faced with the fact that we had pretty much taken the cream of the crop and there wasn't any other solution if we didn't start mastering ourselves, remastering, especially because a huge portion of the library only existed in four by three masters, which is a real problem for widescreen movies because we were not going to release a four by three letterbox movie on a DVD. That might have gone in the Laserdisc days because there weren't 16 by nine televisions. So we started remastering films here at Warner Brothers Motion Picture Imaging, and the quality was much better than what we had been able to bring before or what was available anyplace else. We also started doing collections, and then with the successful addition of the DVD-9 to our Manufacture on Demand program, we were able to start into heavy seasonal television shows, and we were able to, over time, release all nine seasons of the FBI, release all five seasons of Dr. Kildare, all seven seasons of Medical Center. We even talked about this just a few weeks oh, ago. Sure. Made for television movies, made for television miniseries, animation, big, big, important part of our business 
was animation. And we were really all things to all people, which is an impossible task. We often use industry terminology yes. that the listeners don't necessarily actually have a clear idea of no, what they mean. Not at so, all. Let's talk about that. So let's take a vocabulary moment. And sure. George, if you will, please define master and remaster. Basically, when a film is put onto, at this point, digital videotape, we call that mastering. In the old days, we used to refer to it as telecine because the film went through older equipment where the film actually touched sprockets and it was not as finely developed a process as it is now. What we do now is we scan films where the film elements actually never get the sprocket holes touched, and we scan everything in high definition, whether the end product is a standard definition DVD or the end product is now a high definition Blu-ray. And when we create that new master, that is the source of the film that is then used by other divisions of the company for television and so forth and so on. In a way, a master in the film process would be a print. So that's a very good point. When films started to go to home video in the late 70s and early 80s, they would use a release print as the source of the master. Because that's how it would be sent to television sometimes. Right. You know, if you go back to the late 70s, early 80s, local television stations were showing 16 millimeter prints that usually were filled with splices and scratches. This is for episodic television as well as feature films. And a video master made off of a nice new print was a big step forward. And, and that was a new thing. And in the 80s, they developed digital video mastering, which was very expensive. But that it was, was only a step forward. That was in the very late 80s. Yeah, late. Very late 80s, the first initial digital technologies became available. D1. And um, D1 was more expensive than D2. Yeah. And without boring everybody out there, <laughs> yeah, because we could get this can get all snoozy. of this technology is not only antiquated now, but in order to play back those sources, yep. oh, God. you have to Frankenstein machines that hopefully will be able to play back an image. But that's why. If you look at Turner Broadcasting's purchase of the MGM library in 1986 and then forming TNT as a television vehicle by which this huge library could be uh, exhibited on television, basically the entire Turner library was put onto tape with very little time dedicated to the process. And they had a huge library to do and they wanted to get it ready for the network and and so the masters were filled with dirt and scratches and spices and all sorts of things. And they weren't even necessarily coming off of prints. By then, they were using intermediate elements in certain cases. That worked for TV, but even at that time would not necessarily be acceptable for the Laserdisc format, right. which never really took off beyond two million households, I think. But that was like the connoisseur's way of owning a movie until the advent of DVD. And it was primarily VHS that was the way people owned their movies for the initial almost first 20 years of the video industry. Right, and so today when we make a master, it's a digital file. 
we're making, there's a scan and it's all fixed and it's a, you can print that off, but it is a digital video file. It's done as a very huge. Yeah, high end. High end file that is output to tape for protection. For protection, right. And then incredibly compressed for broadcast right. and digital distribution but, and whatnot. But it exists. But it exists digitally. digitally. So we scan very often, sometimes the original negative. We talked about that here on the program. But usually intermediate elements because the only time we'll ever scan original negative is if we can do so in 4K resolution. Technology has continued to improve. The quality of our releases continued to get better and better on DVD. And then in 2012, we dipped our toe in the water of Blu-ray. But in doing so, we knew that whereas DVD-R serviced our needs perfectly for manufacturing on demand. And we weren't making one or two of titles, but rather a thousand or two of titles. We decided to start releasing films on Blu-ray, and we did so slowly and tentatively, and the release schedule has grown and grown to the point where we're now releasing anywhere from 40 to 60 movies, or that's the goal, 40 to 60 movies a year on Blu-ray. And people are saying, oh my God, well, your library is so large, I'll never live long enough for everything to be done. The point of that is, is that we're not going to put a film out on Blu-ray unless A, we can make it work financially, and B, we can give it the best quality that it is capable of providing. You know, initially launched, we got a lot of brickbacks thrown because uh, we're being relegated to DVD-R as if it was a lesser format, an inferior medium, and it's not. It's digital material that is read. It plays the same. We stand behind it. We've been doing this for 10 years. And the recordable media used is not the same as what people buy in a store, but everybody thought that it was. So we kind of went from uh, people gnashing their, certain fans gnashing their teeth at the uh, announcement that we would be putting something out to now those same fans that are gnashing their teeth when something isn't out on Blu-ray and why are you putting stuff still out on DVD? It's a 20-year-old medium. Now, mediums can be 100 years old. Books can be yeah. 100 years old. Yeah. It, it does its job. Guess where the greatest source of revenue for a home entertainment release comes it's from? It's still DVD. DVD is very popular. It's very good. It's very portable. It's a stable Technology, I'm not saying anything bad about Blu-ray. Blu-ray is wonderful, but, you know, putting down DVD doesn't help the home entertainment business at all. Embrace all the formats for what they can give you when they can give it to you. Now, DVD is a 20-year-old format, and we've seen formats come and go over time. Now, this is a very stable, and as we were saying, it works with streaming and other technologies uh, where do you think, and this is time for some, maybe some sci-fi speculation, where do you think home video might be going in the future? People were predicting the d demise of physical home entertainment earlier in this decade, as right. we're now in 2019. We were looking at studies in 2010 and 2011 showing that DVD would be gone by 2015 or 2016. Have you been in a Walmart lately? Now, knowing and being collectors, there is just something about holding... I mean, and I don't want to sound like, oh, the tactileness of it or the feel makes you feel better about the movie. But number one, it's sort of 
hard to own a movie because a movie is an image, but having a piece of uh, the movie, a, a packaging, a thing, I know I like having it on my, my shelf. And when you look at the record industry, which had digital disruption much earlier, one format that seems to be doing really well for collectors is vinyl. Which is like saying, oh, VHS is going to make a comeback, <laughs> but uh, I wouldn't put anything past them. When the LP was introduced was... 1948. Yeah, and that format, you could... Take a 1948 record and put it on a piece Today, of equipment right. you could buy in a store now That's for right. DJs and play it. That just says something about collecting and the experience of physical media. Now, is that mainstream? Well, it's growing. Vinyl is getting bigger and catalog Well, the mission release. statement of the Warner Archive was rare and hard to find. Right. And that's still our mission statement, and that's why we're releasing DVDs of films that never even got a release on VHS, as well as we're releasing Blu-rays of some phenomenal classics that had eluded the format. Or we're bringing films back that were released and then went out of print and we're bringing them back in print. So it's it's all about the, you said tactile, Matt, which is really important because we try to use original key art wherever possible. Right. Sometimes the original key art was really ugly and we'll find <laughs> something maybe from another country that was better and we'll work with that. But to be able to hold some of these beautiful lithograph posters from the 30s and have that be on the cover of your obscure RKO movie from 1932 that was never available before. Right. Here's a very small audience for that, but we're able to serve that audience profitably. And at the same time, we're able to release Blu-rays of great current animated television shows that people want to have on Blu-ray, but there's no place for them in the store. So we make yeah. it available. We're here to fill in the void, and we're doing it as a boutique within the behemoth. That's how I refer to us. And fulfilling one void doesn't mean we're not servicing the other void. Right, and right. Releasing this, say, B-movie that has a beloved fan base on Blu-ray doesn't mean we're not servicing this A-list movie that is worthwhile of the best presentation possible. Or all these things are being worked TV on show. all simultaneously, all in parallel, and one does not impact the other. There are still so many obstacles that prevent us from doing a lot of the things we'd like to do. We have problems with film elements. We have problems with certain problematic motion pictures where the film elements pose a seven-figure restoration cost that we can't justify, and how do we get around that? And at the same time, there have been films that we've discussed on this podcast that we never thought we'd be able to afford to do, and then we were able to locate a good film element that would yield us a wonderful image and... Voila, the release happens. So certain things we didn't think we'd ever be able to do, we have been able to do. And sometimes in the case of a movie like Dark of the Sun, we put it out on DVD for the first time in 16 by 9 letterbox, but there were gouges in the film, and how are we going to get around that? Well, we just put out a blue, beautiful Blu-ray almost 10 years after we put out that DVD. So there's been a progression Yes. And we are striving to do better and do more. And we have a very, very small, dedicated staff. And half the staff is in this room right now. <laughs> and that has a lot to do with what we are able to do. But we're working on this 24-7 to keep our fans happy. And over the last 10 years to go 
and look back and say, yes, we got all 48 Bowery Boys movies out. We got all the Andy Hardy movies out. We got all the rest of the Charlie Chan movies out that we own because we only own 11 of them and there were many others that were owned by other studios. But a lot of these series films, and then speaking of series, Dan referred to the series Search. Search ran on NBC for one season and was never syndicated and people who watched it loved it and never forgot it. We had to go back to the original negatives, and it was very expensive, and it was profitable. And the only way that you could see it was by buying the DVD from us. And that would never have happened even in the most robust days of retail. And we will continue to mine the library as long as they will allow us to do so. And we have some very exciting things in the future for year number 11. And I wanted our birthday release to be filled with some huge title announcements and very exciting additions to the Warner Archive collection that we can't talk about right Uh, now because they were so difficult that they're going to take longer to do and we can't talk about them yet. Stay tuned. That's all we can say. Stay tuned for big news. Yes, the upcoming year is going to yield a lot of films and television programs that people have asked about for years. And when we'd release one Blu-ray by a specific director, people would say, oh, why are they releasing that when they could be releasing X, Y, and Z? Well... Who's to say we're not? It's just every film has a different story and the film elements are in a different place and the cost factors and where our budget is. And ultimately, our responsibility is not just to you, the customer, the consumer, the collector, but to the shareholders of our company. And we must remain profitable to remain in business. So to balance art versus commerce is the endless battle, but we're committed to it. We're here today to start our second decade and promise you a plethora of television and motion picture filmed entertainment in the best possible quality as quickly as we can. So if you tune into this podcast each week, we talk about all the new releases and then we answer letters and talk about stuff like this but shorter and at the end of the podcast. And it's much funnier. (laughs) If we have intrigued you with this podcast, we urge you to scroll through the 300-plus other podcasts we've done going back to 2009 and see what we've been up to all this time because it's impossible within one podcast to cover everything that we've done and talk about everything that we want to do. But most importantly, we want to thank the thousands and thousands of consumers who have supported us from the beginning and have kept us growing we are committed to bringing you a huge amount of the entertainment you seek i just wanted to take a moment also to call out and thanks some uh employees who were instrumental in us getting here who have now moved on to other shores I just mean other jobs. Nobody passed. Scott, who launched the podcast with George. Special thanks to Scott. And then, of course, to Mike for being the initial steward. And to Terry for making sure everything came out. Happy birthday, guys. Let's celebrate the birthday by saying this is the end of this week's Warner Podcast, but we'll be back next week with a huge slew of new releases. Until that time, I'm George Feltenstein. I'm Matt Patterson. I'm D.W. Ferranti. Thanks for listening. Look forward to the next Warner Archive Podcast. <laughs>